have children and would like to bring them to uh, Sunday school, haven't done that yet, you can take them now. Uh, go, go upstairs for the grammar age kids and nursery downstairs. Um, glad to be bringing you God's word this morning. If you're a guest, welcome. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. I get to uh, bring God's word most Sundays, uh, though I'm also very grateful for Pastor Jeff and others who preach, uh, have the gift of preaching. We have a, a number of people. I actually counted uh, the, the men on our leadership uh, team, counting the interns. I think there's seven total now. Um, so we're going to have some other venues for these guys to preach and bring God's word. But, but uh, I, I will still be here most of the time bringing God's word. And we're in a series in the Gospel of Mark. We're learning from the Gospel of Mark really two key things. Mark is... Uh, in what he writes to us, the intent, I think, is twofold. Is one is to amaze us with Jesus, that we would be amazed by Jesus, it's just to present Jesus in all his glory and all his truth. And then secondly, that we would understand what it means to follow him. So really, the Gospel of Mark is about being amazed by Jesus and following Jesus. And our, our, uh, our section today will uh, be about that. In some ways, it will concentrate on the the reality of following Jesus. Um, so let's pray before we hear from God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful gospel, this good news. Um, Lord, we thank you for your living word. That, Lord, this isn't just a book with cool stories and ideas. This is truth. This is your living word and through which you impart life. And we ask you this morning, Lord to speak to us, to bring life, Lord, uh, to, to encounter us where we are, Lord, in our weakness, wherever we might be, Lord, in our lives. That we would hear from you, and you, Lord, would call us to be amazed and to follow. Lord, would you give me grace to serve your people? Uh, help me to serve you well. I depend on you, and Lord, it's a privilege to share your word. So bless this time, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to be reading in chapter 10, starting with verse 17 and going through verse 31. So listen to God's word from the Gospel of Mark. It says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult 
it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now, in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who will be first, who are first, will be last, and the last first. God's word from Mark chapter 10. Have you heard the story of William Borden? William Borden was the heir apparent of the Borden family business and estate worth billions in modern money. He had come to Christ in the 1890s at the age of seven through the preaching of R.A. Torrey. For his high school graduation present, his parents gave him a trip around the world. And as he traveled through the Far East, India, the Middle East, and Europe, he saw how hurting the world was and was powerfully moved to become a missionary for Christ to these hurting people. He wrote home about his desire to give up his inheritance and serve as a missionary, and one friend expressed disbelief that William was, quote, throwing himself away as a missionary. In response, Borden wrote two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. Borden went on to Yale University, and at the time, the spiritual atmosphere at Yale was dismal. Most students were indifferent to Christ, living for parties and passing pleasures. And William started praying with some of his Christian friends. And they determined to reach out to every single student at Yale University. And over the following years, they watched God reach 1,000 of the 1,300 students at Yale for Christ. Borden's outreach ministry was not confined to the campus. He cared about widows and orphans and the disabled. He rescued alcoholics from the streets of New Haven. And to help rehabilitate them, he founded the Yale Hope Mission. One of Bill Borden's friends wrote that, quote, he might be found in the lower parts of the city at night on the street in a cheap lodging house or some restaurant to which he had taken a poor, hungry fellow to feed him, seeking to lead men to Christ. After hearing about the Hui people in China, the Muslim people in western China, the fact that there was no missionary there, Borden determined that this was the place God was calling him to serve. And upon graduation from Yale, he turned down high-paying job offers to pursue his call to the Muslims in China. In response, apparently his father banned him from the family business. In his Bible... He wrote two more words, no retreats. 
went on to do graduate work at Princeton Seminary. When he finished his work, he sailed for China, but because he was hoping to reach Muslims, he went and stopped at Egypt to learn Arabic and to learn from a famous missionary to Muslims in Egypt. While he was there, he contracted spinal meningitis. Within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. The news was cabled back to the U.S. and really all around the country. People had known about him and his decision to serve, and, and there was a wave of sorrow that went around. In the newspapers, it talked about him. It said, Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves, no retreats, he had written, no regrets. Now, the life of William Borden is in many ways a contrast to our story today, to the rich, young ruler. And you may wonder, well, why, why tell this story when the story in the Bible seems to be the opposite, that this guy gives up everything? Well, God does reach rich, young rulers, and he does change their lives, and they do give up all they have for him. And really, this passage in Scripture isn't there as a, merely as a negative example. It's a positive example. It's, it's, a, it's a clarifying story on what it means to follow him. What does it mean to follow him? What do we need to do? What does following him entail? And I would say that compared to most of history and most cultures, we all are rich young rulers, or maybe rich middle-aged or older rulers of sorts. And so this lesson on discipleship from the Gospel of Mark is for all of us. And there are three things, three things that I want to emphasize from this passage, three things that are essential aspects of discipleship. The three things are this, that following Jesus will cost you everything. Following Jesus will cost you everything. Following Jesus requires a miracle. And following Jesus blesses us beyond imagination. Those are the three points I want to talk about. First, following Jesus will cost you everything. In this story, this young man comes running before Jesus, kneels before him. It describes, describes him in the account. Actually, in the account in Mark, we don't know uh, how old he is. We don't know right away if he's rich. Um, and we don't know that he's a ruler. But we learn in the story that he's wealthy. And that is why he decides not to follow Jesus. If you look in the parallel accounts in Matthew, you learn he's young. In Luke, you learn that he's a ruler. So we call him the rich young ruler. And it, there's nothing in this story to doubt this man's sincerity. He is sincere in his desire to follow Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. He comes uh, asking this question sincerely. What must I do? He is a seeker of sorts. He runs up to Jesus and he kneels before him. Uh, and this is, a, this is a wealthy, prestigious person. He kneels before Jesus. He recognizes Jesus is someone important. Jesus is sent of God. And he calls him a good teacher. That's a term of great respect and possibly also flattery. And Jesus, is, Jesus addresses that term, good teacher, because from the man's vantage point, not yet understanding that Jesus is God, most likely, it's inappropriate to call him good as a man. Really, no one is good but God alone. And that's just not like a trivial, you know, nitpicking on, on Jesus' part. Oh, you shouldn't say that. No, there, there's probably... A, there is, we know from the story, something behind the man's statement of good teacher. His, his, his eyes really are on man, on himself. 
in his pursuit of knowing how can I inherit eternal life, he's looking at himself. He's not looking to God. He's not looking to the one who is the only good person. We see that in the dialogue as it goes on. We see that he doesn't really see his desperate need. And so Jesus probes his obedience, I mean, probes where he is with the, the law, with the commandments of God. So Jesus says, starts to tell him what the commandments say. He asks, how, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So he's probing where this man is. He's probing where his heart is with the law of God, with the commandments. If you'll notice, the, the commandments he uses are the ones related to how this young man relates to people. And that was perhaps the most accessible aspect of where this man was, the thing that was most evident, the thing that needed to be addressed the most. So Jesus brings the law of God, the commands, to evaluate his life. And that's a great way to to probe someone's life, to probe our own life, to bring the law of God, to expose our hearts. And that's part of what Jesus is doing. To really test, where is this man? How does he relate to the law? See, the law of God is good and right and proper, And the law really does two things in our lives. Uh, One is that the law shows us how far we fall short. When God says, do this, and we read that, and when we understand that, be the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, this is how you ought to live, when he says, you you know, you've heard it said, do not murder, I say anyone who's angry with his brother in his heart is subject to the fires of hell. It basically says you can murder by being angry. That, that truth that Jesus brings out is the law. And it's meant to probe our hearts and reveal where we are, that we might be convicted and realize, you know what? I don't follow the law. I'm in trouble. That's what we call the second use of law. Theologians call that the second use of law. The, the other aspect that the law does is it defines what godliness looks like. It defines what the life of faith looks like. So for someone who was a genuine believer, say this young man was a genuine believer, and Jesus said, you know the commandments, he would have had a response, perhaps in line with the second, yes, I've fallen so far short of this. And then with the third, saying, but I want to do this. I want to live this way. I want to love. Help me, Jesus. Forgive me. Give me power, God, to do this. And so that would have reflected the third use. So Jesus was correct to use God's law to evaluate this man's heart, and we know his response. He didn't really do either of those responses, second use or third use. The second use was there, and and he missed it. And so what he says, when Jesus says, you know the commands, he says what? All these I have kept from my youth. I'm doing good, Jesus. I've kept the commandments. And probably he was, at least technically, keeping the commandments. He probably could point to things in his life and say, yes, I I have, I've not murdered, I've, I've not defrauded, I've honored my father and mother, I've done these since I was a youth. He's not getting it. He's not understanding that when he would truly measure his heart before God's law, he would not have a hope in himself, and he would see that he's not good, and no man is good apart from God. This is a wonderful interaction that Jesus is having with this man, this young man. And he's seeking to address his heart. And so the guy doesn't see it. He doesn't see that he's fallen short, that perhaps he has done things like stealing and defrauding with how he's held his money. 
He's not seen how he's fallen short. So Jesus confronts him and says, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. And the guy's probably thinking, oh, just give me that one thing to do. I'll be all set. I'll do it just like I've done all the rest. And then I'll be good with God and I can go to heaven and be with him forever and live in the kingdom. Jesus says, go sell all that you have. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Liquidate all your assets. Liquidate everything you have, everything you've known, everything you've enjoyed your whole life. All that you have, perhaps, as your hope for your future. Sell it all and give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The man's response is to decide not to take Jesus up on that invitation. To refuse true treasure. To refuse treasure that lasts forever. To refuse the opportunity to use his treasures in such a way that he would enjoy them forever. He does not see that. He doesn't understand that. He doesn't realize that. He doesn't respond to the invitation and instead decides to go back home and play with his money instead of following Jesus. He goes home and says that he's disheartened by the saying. He was disheartened. All of a sudden, he did a 180 in how he felt about the whole thing. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, often this passage in Scripture, uh, at this point, you might hear people try to qualify what's going on here, to try to keep people from misunderstanding or understanding it or wanting them to understand things properly. You'll hear people say, well, let's just be sure we understand that, you know, this is the young man. Not every believer needs to sell all they have. So don't worry about that. You should keep your stuff, perhaps. And and maybe spend too much time on that qualification. Or you hear the other side. People will look at this passage and say, well, obviously this is how every Christian should live. Every Christian should sell all they have, give it to the poor, and follow Jesus. And in the medieval ages, that was a common uh, standard for following Jesus. You sold everything. And I think both those interpretations of this passage are wrong, uh, are incomplete, See, these stories in Mark are here to do two things, right? I talked about that. To amaze us with Jesus and to call us to follow and define what it means to follow. And over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, Mark uses these stories to to present a truth, a principle to us. And the story is particular to that person or persons in the story. Right? I mean, we saw, we've seen that over and over again. We saw the man who was healed partially, right? He saw people like trees walking, and then he was healed again. Does that mean everyone should be prayed for, and then you'll experience partial healing, and then full healing? No, it's illustrating a principle, a truth, that, that our, our walk with God, our understanding of truth can come in stages. Well, this story in particular is this young man's experience, but the principle it illustrates is universal. It's for all believers. It's for you and for me, and all who would consider Jesus, all who would consider Jesus being amazed by Jesus, consider following him. 
And the principle is this, that following Jesus requires, costs you everything. Following Jesus costs you everything. That all of your life is for him. If you would follow Jesus, everything you are, everything you have, everything you will be is to be for him. No exceptions. That's the principle. We are called to lay our lives down. We're called to turn away from any, anything that isn't living for him, trusting him, and using all of our resources to love him and to love others in his name. That's what this is calling us to, this universal principle for every believer. And that's really important to understand. There are no exceptions. It's a radical call. The call of discipleship is radical. Christians are to be radical. And if they're not radical, they're probably not Christians. There's no exceptions here. All for him. That's what repentance is. When we come to Jesus, many of us, as believers, we would understand. And if you're not a believer, we're glad you're here. Listen in as we talk about these things. You would understand that to come to Christ, you must repent. You must Turn around. You must change your perspective and you must put your faith in Christ. Repentance is turning away from a lifestyle of selfishness and sin. A lifestyle that says, I'm the one who gets to determine how to spend my money. I'm the one who gets to determine how to spend my time. I'm the one who gets to determine who are my friends and who are not my friends. I'm the one who gets to determine what sort of career I would or would not have. I'm the one who rules my life. I am the captain of my own destiny. It's turning from that. Repenting, turning away, and saying, Jesus, you're the one. I trust in you as king. I trust in you for forgiveness for the ways that I've sinned against you, the ways that I have done it my own way, and to find myself in my own terms. I turn from that. I trust in you for forgiveness, and I trust in you to lead me. It's all for you, Jesus. It's a radical call. It's not about comfortable Christianity. It's not about having a nice home and a nice car and well-behaved family and a nice steady job. None of that. There's nothing wrong with those things. God does bless us with them. But it's not about whether I get to keep those or not. You don't get to keep them. You get to offer them to the Lord. You get to enjoy them in his name as he gives them to you. And it would be, it's another message, but it would be wrong to think that it means I don't get to enjoy anything. To be an ascetic, I have to sell and never have anything. Paul says very clearly in 1 Timothy that, that uh, we are to, he creates these things, foods and other things, to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. That he gives us these things that we might enjoy them as worship and thanksgiving to him. So they have their place. But the difference is, how do we think about those things? How do we think about our lives? Do we recognize these are all from him and they are all back to him anything i have is for him he owns it all he defines my life and having him is more glorious and more important to me than anything else and so i gladly offer to him my time my money my family my plans my career my thoughts my recreational time, my hobbies, my identity. Everything about me, everything I have is for him and in him and to him. 
That's the radical call here. That's the call that Jesus makes to this rich young ruler. It's the call that he makes to you and me as well. And I have to press this on my own soul, and I have to press it on your souls too, because I'm your pastor, and I have a responsibility to you to ask you this question. Is this your Christianity? Is this your Christ? The one who says, leave it all and follow. The one who says, I must be the one who determines what you choose and what you do and how you live. And we know he's completely trustworthy. But is this your Christ? Is this your Christianity? Or is there a functional Christ that's not the Christ of the Scripture that's operating in your life? And one way to tell that is, is there something that you insist you must have your way? Is there some area of your life that's not submitted to him that you want to keep your way? Have you actively pursued how he would call you to live? Are you asking him, what pleases you with my money? What pleases you with my schedule? What pleases you with how I spend leisure time? That's what we're called to. That's the radical call here. To follow Jesus is to give all these things for him. To live for him. To love him. To be loved by him and thus turn and give everything back to him. So what area of your life? Is there something you're holding back? Is there a sin in your life? That's more precious to you than, it is, than Jesus is. Is there an addiction you're caught in that is defining who you are? Do you need help? There's help. There's mercy. We're going to talk about that as we go. But you must decide, am I going to follow Christ or these things? There's no compromise here. And I think that we can slip into lifestyle of compromise without ever intending to do it. We can slip into ways of living, ways of handling our time and our friendships and our money that are compromised. Where we just slowly make decisions and we just slowly drift away. And all of a sudden, functionally, Jesus and the work that he's doing to build his kingdom is not the most important thing. It's something else. The house, the new car, even family time, as important as that might be, can be unsubmitted to Jesus our families, our money. We can just drift away. And this call today in Mark chapter 10 is God's call to you right here in this place to consider this truth. And ask yourself, have I slipped away in some way? Have I said something else is more important than following Jesus and living for Jesus? We probably don't even understand how extensive that might be. We live in a culture that lives totally different than this. Our culture is full of rich young rulers determining their own destiny. And we need a wake-up call from Scripture. One man that I know that does a great job of bringing this truth and bringing it to the church is a guy named David Platt. He's written a book named Radical. And our millennial group, our young adult group, is starting that today. Is it starting today or next week? Next week. Uh, going through a course through the book Radical and I think a video and a discussion uh, 
to really ask these sort of questions that we're talking about today. I actually want to show a video from David Platt uh, where he talks about this concept. So if you could roll the video. should be rolling. Hallelujah. All right, we'll give him 30 seconds more to give a try. started. <laughs> Thanks guys for working on that. It's a really good video. And yeah, you can kind of tell what he's saying, but um, just give me the thumbs up, guys, if you have that. Uh, he does a great job in this video and in this series, so I just want to encourage uh, our young adults to be part of a millennial group and be part of that discussion. I really believe that if you guys uh, take time to go through this book together, I think the Lord's going to work and do things and set a course for your life. Uh, many of you are already on that course, but to encourage you in that course of your life of living for the King. Um, and if you're... Uh, not a young adult and really want to be a part of it, we can get you the book and maybe, uh, maybe we can let you in on the class a little bit too. I think it's well worth it. It's a, it's a radical call. This call uh, of discipleship is a radical call. And I'm sure you're feeling as I'm saying it, like, this is kind of heavy. <laughs> this is heavy. And I'm looking at my life and thinking, wow, I fall short. What, what am I to do? And I want you to know that your your feeling your reaction actually is not really different than how the disciples took it. Jesus said these things. Uh, he, he, he made this radical call, and then he said some things about it. The rich young man walks away sad, and it says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, and listen, now he, he says it's how difficult for those who have wealth. Now he says, children, how difficult it is, period, to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it says, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? They are feeling the heaviness of this themselves. This, this young man, in their eyes, would have been would have been uh, one of the best candidates to be part of their disciples group. He's, he's rich, he's a ruler, he's young, he's sincere. He wants to follow Jesus. 
And, and at the time, they would have understood riches as a blessing from God. So in their eyes, this is a godly man. He's been blessed with riches. And, and he's sincere, so shouldn't he follow? And Jesus is saying, no, it's difficult. How difficult it is. For those who have wealth, how difficult is it for anybody? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And their response is then, who can be saved? Who can be saved? You know what, if you're honest with yourself, that's what you should be thinking. How can I do this thing? How can I give up these things? How can I keep on giving them up? How can I trust him? That's a good place to be. Let's pause that thought. And now watch the video. The mantra of the American dream is to advance yourself with hard work, ingenuity, innovation. You can have it all. The frightening reality of the gospel. Jesus does call us to give up everything we have. And he may tell any one of us to sell all of our possessions and give them to the poor. But we don't believe this. If we form Jesus to look like us and be who we want him to be, then even when we gather together and sing our praises and lift our hands, the reality is we are not worshipping the Jesus of the Bible. We are worshipping and singing to ourselves. We have... A master who demands radical obedience. A mission that warrants radical urgency. And we do not have time to waste our lives living out a Christian spin on the American dream. The most glorious reason you exist is for the proclamation of the glory of God to the ends of the earth. And it's more than having a nice life. It's about giving our lives and our families and our jobs for the proclamation of the glory of Christ to the ends of the earth. If we're going to live for the sake of 4.5 million lost people and thousands and thousands and thousands of kids who are dying every day because they don't have food on their table, then that would be radical change in our lives and our families and church. Church, we are plan A and there is no plan B. that's the call that's the radical call if you signed up that's what you signed up for that's the call of Jesus that's the call for all of our lives and I'm excited for our millennials to go through this material and I'm excited for us as a church to consider this radical call and as I was saying this this is a call that's an impossible call when we really think about it Who can be saved? Who can live this life? Who can possibly do this? Jesus has told them it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it's a metaphor, and it's exactly that. A camel going through the eye of the needle. There are, there's a teaching that's been out there for a long time, actually from the medieval ages, that the eye of the needle was this special gate uh, in Jerusalem that was a sub-door and in order for the camel to get through, it had to get rid of its burden and kneel down and get in that way. It's a great metaphor, you know, that you've got to kneel down, you get rid of your burdens, go in. But that sort of gate never existed. 
Uh, it's not true. <laughs> it's not what he's talking about. He's literally talking about a 2,000-pound, 7-foot-tall animal being stuffed through a 3-millimeter eye of a needle. That's what he's talking about. And it's impossible. It's impossible. It can't happen. You can't do it. Disciples, rich young ruler, king of grace church, you cannot do it in your own power. You cannot make the camel go through the eye of the needle. It's impossible with men. But with God, all things are possible. With God, he can make William Bordens out of rich young rulers. God can do this, and God does it. He does work in great power to change lives, to do these things. How does he do it? Well, I can share some verses with you that talk about this. Let's just look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. It talks about how he does this. Listen to what he says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins of which you once walked, following the course of of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all live in that state, our natural state. We're all camels who cannot enter the kingdom of God. We live for ourselves, and we like to define life on our own. But God has not left us there in that state. The verse continues, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. God has done the impossible by sending Christ to give up His life to live a righteous life and offer up that life on the cross in payment for your sins, your rebellion, your pride, your choices to pay the penalty and through faith in Him that you would be forgiven and accepted by Him. That truth we call the gospel. That's the good news of Christ that he died. And and on the third day he rose again, victorious over sin and death. He's ascended. He's reigning. He's coming back. He's the living God, the Son. And he's done all this. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, in his own timing in our lives, the truth of this gospel breaks through in a way that transforms us in a way that our eyes are opened and we see the old way and we say, I don't want that. I don't want the old way. I don't want riches. I don't want to be a rich young ruler. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And we turn and we trust in Christ. 
And we rest in Christ for forgiveness. We trust him for our lives. We trust him for our identity. And in the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel, the camel goes through the eye of the needle. And we find ourselves in the kingdom of God. That's how God makes William Bordens out of rich young rulers. And if you've put your faith in Christ, you have been changed. And you are now in the kingdom. And you are different. And the call of this passage is really just to live within the reality in which you already live. To not live a contradictory life. Just to follow through with who you are. You're already in the kingdom. You already have Jesus. This is your life. Why go back to those things? Why live for that which is temporary? Why define your life on your terms when you have God's terms which are glorious and good? For the one who has not yet believed, the call here is to believe in the miracle-working God who has made a way for you through Christ, crucified for you, should you believe in Him, and risen. And God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you. So turn from everything else and trust in Christ. Find your life in Him. Experience that miracle. God does the impossible. Put your hope there. In the heaviness and radical nature of this call, do not look to your own strength. Do not look to your own ability to carry it out. Don't depend on man. Depend on God. Look to what he's done. He's provided for you already forgiveness and power. It's all of grace. Grace means it's a free, unearned gift. Through faith, through believing the gift that's given to you. That's where the power is to walk this out. To give up all things. So where is your hope as a Christian? When asked questions that Jesus might ask, how do you respond? I've kept these things since I was a youth. Or, I love these things, but I've fallen so far short. Rescue me. Change me. Make me like you, Jesus. Help me. Put your hope in the God that does the impossible. He will bless. He will use you. He will give you power to give all to him. And then, amazingly, he will reward you for it. And that's the last point here in the the experience of the disciples as we read on. Peter is hearing this interaction He watches the interaction and then hears Jesus say this. And then he, I think understandably so, starts to be a little nervous. (laughs) What about us? It's impossible. Who can be saved? But Lord, we've left everything to follow you. We've laid it all on the line. We've put our trust in you. What about us? Jesus only seeks to assure Peter and encourage Peter. And so he speaks of reward to Peter. He speaks of blessing to Peter. And he talks about the details of this, the details of the sacrifice and the details of the blessing for Peter. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. No one who has left these things. These are the the most precious things to us in life, really. A house, a home, a place to live, 
place to call your own. Familiar surroundings, familiar rhythms of life, the blessing of a home. Brothers or sisters, mother or father, family, those that love you, those that know you, those that are committed to your good and the ups and downs of life, family, lands. This is speaking really of farms and fields, and for them that would have been their occupation, would have been their inheritance, would have been even their identity. These are the most precious things in life, and Jesus recognizes that his disciples have left these things. And really, that for all believers, we potentially or actually leave such things. There's a cost. There's a cost, and really it's only by the miracle of new life in Christ, the miracle of understanding who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that we would ever consider giving up homes and families and jobs. Only through him. Only through understanding what he's done for us. Only through understanding the gospel. Only through experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives would we do this. Through the miracle of seeing who he is and trusting him. And I'm really glad for the many examples in our midst of folks who have actually done this. Given up houses, family, careers for Jesus and for his kingdom. And I could take time just to talk about different people in our church. Glad for a church as I inter- relate with you guys. I'm glad for a church. I know the heart for God, the heart to serve Him, the heart to give all. I'm grateful for that. But I have been thinking in particular as I went through this about our three interns coming and their families. Three men, their wives, their children, who in really a a poignant way have given up houses and families and careers for Jesus and the gospel. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for these men. I'm grateful for their wives. As you get to know them, you'll see that it's really both husband and wife that demonstrate this sort of faith, this sort of eagerness to follow. And they are sacrificing. And I'm really grateful for the promise that Jesus gives in the second part of this passage. He promises not to reward them double, Not to reward them triple or quadruple or tenfold, twenty-fivefold, fiftyfold. He promises to reward those who leave these things for Jesus and the gospel a hundredfold. A hundredfold. Jesus makes the promise to reward a hundredfold. Now in this time. Now in this time. In this life. Houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. This time includes persecutions and sufferings. And in the age to come, eternal life, where houses and families and lands will be multiplied even more and enjoyed without the taint of sin, without tears forever and ever. That's the promise that he'll reward that way. How does he do it? How does he reward that way? I mean, does this mean that if you're a Christian, you're just going to get rich? That's what I'm saying. Give away things and you'll get a hundredfold. Give me a dollar and I'll give you a hundred. He'll give you a hundred dollars. That's not what 
I'm saying. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He can do it that way. He can give exponentially, financially, and we're encouraged to give to him with that hope. But God's economy is more than just simply dollars and cents. He thinks more broadly than that. And I believe that he answers this promise. He brings this promise to reality because when we do give up houses and homes and family and careers for him, we are rewarded because we're giving those things up to invest in the kingdom, to invest in his family. And we find ourselves a part of what he's doing in his family. And our family goes from just our biological family to the ultimate family that includes countless people, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, brothers and sisters and mothers, but not fathers. Isn't that interesting? You give up fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, but you don't get fathers. You get mothers, brothers and sisters. Why would Jesus say that? I think it's because you get the Father, our Heavenly Father, the true Father, the perfect Father, the Father who loves his people and will always care for them and always be there for them and is always gracious towards them and loves them without measure, without ceasing, the Father. We get the Father and the Father's family. And now we find ourselves with brothers and sisters and welcomed into their homes as our home. God also guides us in vocations. He calls us to serve. He gives us a new inheritance and a new identity. He does reward this way. And he does not disappoint. And for our interns, this is my expectation that in some small measure as they come here having given up so much, they will find a new family that they didn't have before, a church family. And by God's grace, as they plant churches, they will find even more and grow God's family. To have brothers and sisters that will be their brothers and sisters forever because they gave up other brothers and sisters. I trust that God will use us. I trust that God will use their work for the kingdom to richly reward them. God promises this. He guarantees it. He calls us to this through this passage as well. This wonderful promise is for all of us. According to his economy, verse 31, the final verse is, but many who are first will be last in the last verse. This is just reminding us of his economy. It's the one who puts themselves last to serve others, who gets the richest reward. As we continue to lay our lives down and continue to give away to him, he rewards us, he blesses us, and we inherit a great inheritance. It is worth it. It is well worth it to follow him and to give up everything for him. Jim Elliot believed that. You guys know the story of Jim Elliot. I've told it before. You've probably read about it. January 1956, the world learned of the brutal murder of five young missionaries in the jungles of Ecuador. Five young men. If you have seen the movie or read the book, you'll know these were vibrant, capable men who could have had successful jobs as business executives or doctors 
who were young husbands and fathers in the spring of their lives, who gave up all the promise for the sake of Christ and his gospel among an obscure Indian tribe, the Aka Indians. One of these men is well known today because of his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, who's told the story of, of him. Jim Elliot, a handsome, athletic, intelligent, energetic young man brought up by loving parents on a homestead in Oregon who gave up all his talents and heritage that he might have, that might have earned him a place in the world to die a cruel death in the jungles of Ecuador. Why? Was it all a foolish waste? No. Nope. For the result of their deaths were not only the eventual salvation of many from that tribe that had murdered them, but shining modern examples of martyrdom and devotion to the Lord that inspired a generation of young believers to greater faith and faithfulness and service. Jim Elliot said famously, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot's life displayed this today, displays this to us today. And he is re- enjoying a rich reward right now. He is understanding the profound nature of his statement. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The rich young man was a fool. He sought to keep what he could not keep and forsake gaining what he would never lose. The invitation from Christ to you, to the rich young man, to William Borden, to Jim Elliot, to the young adults in the millennial group, is to give away what you can't keep anyhow. And in Christ, find something that you will never lose. Reward from Him. That's His call. That's His promise. That's the example of His life. So as the band comes up and we close, I just want to ask you to consider these truths. If someone were to look at your life, and you don't have to be a missionary in Ecuador, you can be a faithful parent in Haverhill, a faithful neighbor in Methuen, a faithful worker on your job for Christ. There's no difference in the kingdom. One's not more glorious than another. There's not different types of discipleship. But for all of us, no matter what our context might be, we are called to this radical lifestyle. So if someone were to look at your life, they were to look at how you conduct family life, they were to look at your checkbook, they were to look at your calendar, they would look to look at your job, or your interactions with your coworkers, how you do your job, whatever it might be, would they say, yes, indeed, this person's life demonstrates the reality that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Does your lifestyle reflect the call of God in this passage? Does your lifestyle reflect that maxim from Jim Elliot? Or is there something that you're holding back? Your time? Your plans? Your money? Are you tithing? That's a the starting point, really, for Christian stewardship, to give a tenth to the Lord. Are you tithing? Are you involved in a small group? Do you understand he calls you to be part of a church and to invest relationally in a church? Are you investing yourself or just waiting to receive? Are you giving away your life? Are you laying it all down for Jesus? 
Are you trusting him? Are you asking him daily, Lord, would you use me today just to share your love and truth in some way? Would you give me an open door? Would you give me strength and words to say? Are you thinking of your relationships in terms of that? Are you depending on Jesus for all this? Or are you living right now in condemnation, thinking, I fall short, I can't do it, so forget it? Or are you looking to him who does the impossible? Let's take a minute before we close in song just to close our eyes and ask the Lord, Lord, what step can I take in light of this truth? Give me power and strength in that. And then we'll close in song.